This week, around our world, people stopped for a few minutes to remember the Holocaust. This week was Holocaust Remembrance Day. And in the midst of that, a study was released that had some pretty sobering statistics. The study revealed that 41% of adults in America and 66% of my generation, millennials, don't know what Auschwitz is. And in that same study, a, a sizable portion of adults believe that only 2 million people died in the Holocaust, when in actuality it was 6 million. And those statistics hit my radar because I just finished reading the story of Viktor Frankl. Viktor was an Austrian psychiatrist who entered Auschwitz in October of 1944. And over the next several months, he was in three different concentration camps. He narrowly avoided death on multiple occasions through incredible stories. And as he was going through all of these concentration camps as a prisoner, he looked for opportunities to learn about and serve other prisoners as a psychiatrist. When, when Frankel went into the concentration camps, there were two prevailing thoughts in Europe about what drove human behavior. The, the first school of thought was popularized by a man named Sigmund Freud. And Freud said that humans at our core are driven by a desire for pleasure. That's at its core what everything we do is about. There was another man, his name was Alfred Adler, and his belief, his school of thought, and those who followed it, was that humans were driven by a desire for power. But, but Frankel experienced something very different in his camp, and he tells the story of his experience there and the theory that came out of it in his book, Man's Search for Meaning. The book was published in 1959, and over the last 50 years, it sold well over 12 million copies. I just finished the book a couple weeks ago, and I don't know why I waited so long to read it. But in the book, Frankel shares his school of thought that now is known as logotherapy, which says that humans are not driven primarily by a desire for pleasure. Humans are not primarily driven by a desire for power, but humans are primarily driven by a desire for meaning. And what Frankel describes in his book is that you would have two men who were the exact same size, the exact same weight, eating the exact same thing, living through the exact same horrific conditions, even facing the same disease. And one would live and one would die. And the difference is the one who lived believed that meaning could be found in his suffering and the one who died believed there was no meaning or purpose to it all. And when that man gave up, he would die within 24 to 48 hours. Throughout his book, Frankel repeats the words of Frederick Nietzsche, who said, He who has a why to live for can bear almost any how. He who has a why, a meaning, a purpose to live for can bear almost any how. And today, we're going to continue this series about meaning and purpose and talk about how that sense of meaning and purpose gives our lives tremendous value. When you walked in, you go to Bolton, and in that Bolton is a handout. I'd encourage you to pull it out if you haven't already. At the top of it is a section that says big idea, and this is our big idea today. It's a, a little bit longer than normal, but here's what it is. Every person is driven by a desire for meaning. 
and embracing God's calling gives our life eternal meaning. See, here's what I'm convinced of. I'm convinced that we are today, each one of us, and regardless of whatever season of life or stage we're in, we're looking for meaning in the season that we're in. God has given us that desire and that drive for meaning. And when we discover the purposes and the calling for which God created us, not only does this season in our life have meaning, not only does our life on earth have meaning, but our eternal life has meaning. Because all of us are going to live eternally. The question is, where? And what will that eternal life look like? And the things that we do today will determine that. The story of where we end up and what that looks like is summarized well in Ephesians chapter 2, where the Apostle Paul writes these words. He says, For by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Which is why today I want to start with this, that what we're talking about today does involve us doing good works. But we're not doing those good works to save us because we've been saved by faith. And that wasn't our own doing. It's a gift of God. We didn't earn it. We didn't deserve it. But Paul goes on to say this in Ephesians 2.10. He says, For we are his, referring to God, workmanship. And that word workmanship in the Greek is the same word we would use to describe the Mona Lisa or the Michelangelo sculpture or the Sistine Chapel or name your favorite guitar solo or your favorite song or your favorite book. Or that dessert that makes you weak in the knees? A masterpiece. Paul is saying that we, humanity, are God's crowning work. His workmanship, his masterpiece. That we are created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Paul is saying that not only has God saved us from our sins, but he has purposes for us and plans for us that he wants us to walk in. We weren't just saved from something, we're saved for something. Put another way, we were created on purpose. We were created for a purpose. And life only makes sense when we connect with our creator who's given us this purpose. So if you've been searching for meaning or purpose in the season of life or in your life in general, that purpose will only be clear as you connect to your creator who created you on purpose and for a purpose. And I believe all of us have this deep longing within us for a sense of purpose. Frankel would describe it for a sense of meaning. And when we don't find that meaning, when we don't find that purpose, we numb that ache within us through pleasure. We numb that ache within us through power and so many other things. And this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to look at a man in the story of the scriptures who found his sense of meaning and purpose, and it changed everything. His name is Nehemiah. So if you have a Bible, if you open it up or turn it on and turn to Nehemiah chapter 1. Nehemiah is in the Old Testament in the first section of the Bible. It's between the books of Ezra and Esther. 
And what you need to know about the Bible, if you haven't figured it out already, is the Bible is not given to us in chronological order. The Bible that you have in your hands, whether it's a digital one or a physical one, is not there in the order of events that it happened. Because Nehemiah, in my Bible, is in the first third, but in terms of history, it occurs in the last third of your Bible. And Nehemiah tells us the story of what happened when the people of Israel were in exile. So you say, Scott, how did, they, how did they get here? How did they end up in exile? Well, the people of Israel were in exile because they had broken their covenant with God. God made a covenant with his people. And he said, I will be devoted to you. I will love you with a covenant and steadfast love. But your responsibility is to keep my laws and keep my commandments. And over hundreds of years, the people failed to live up to that covenant. They abandoned God's laws. They abandoned God's statutes. They abandoned worshiping God and began worshiping false gods, putting their trust in false gods. And so God sent prophet after prophet after prophet. You can read their names in the Bible. Guys like Isaiah and Jeremiah who told them, if you do not turn from your ways, judgment is coming. God will allow someone to come and conquer us. And ultimately he did in the form of the Babylonian Empire. The Babylonians conquered Jerusalem. They took the majority of the people away to Babylon, the most powerful people. And the people of Israel were exiled there for 70 years. And that's where we find Nehemiah. Now, before we get into the passage, I want to describe to you a little bit of who Nehemiah is. His primary job was that he was a cupbearer. In many ways, he was like a butler to the king. And so for me, when I hear the word butler, I think of this guy right here. Remember his name? Jeffrey, the butler on Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. Some of you haven't watched this show before because you lack culture, but if you went on YouTube, <laughs> you would learn about a man who was born in West Philadelphia who took a taxi across the country to L.A., and when he showed up, he was the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. I mean, I don't know why you don't know the song, but you should go home. That's your application point of this sermon, and Google the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air Bel -Air theme song. But in the, in the show, Jeffrey is like the butler. He takes care of this family, and in some ways, that's Nehemiah's job. His job is to serve the king his cup, but his job is so much bigger than that because as a king, he was the, the, the focus of threats and desires of other other people to be killed. And so one of the best ways to poison the king is through his cup, to poison his drink. And so Nehemiah's job as the servant to the king was the cupbearer to make sure the king wasn't poisoned. Now he could do that by drinking the cup. That's one way to do it. But there's some, you know, the, I'm from Las Vegas. Those odds aren't good. His job was to make sure that poison didn't even end up in the cup. And that's why in my eyes, it isn't just Jeffrey being a butler. He's kind of more like the rock. Because he was not the secret service for the king, he had to orchestrate a safe passage of food from the field to the king's cup. He had to ferret out conspiracy plots and protect the king. He was in a highly trusted role. And we pick up his story in Nehemiah chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. It says, The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah, now it happened in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped and who'd survived the exile concerning Jerusalem. 
And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. And as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and I wept and I mourned for days. Nehemiah is heartbroken when he learns of the state of his city. And, and we don't understand this because that world of Nehemiah is so foreign to us. If you drove into Prescott today for church, if you came from Chino Valley or Prescott Valley or Dewey, one thing that didn't happen, I can guarantee you on your drive here, is that you did not drive through city walls. Prescott is not surrounded by city walls to keep it safe, but Jerusalem and ancient cities were. And so when the city had walls that were broken down, the city was not safe, the city was not secure, and no one, regardless of their station in life, rich or poor, could live with peace and be worry-free. Because at any moment, the city could be attacked. At any moment, their family could be in danger. And so Nehemiah's brothers come to him and say, Nehemiah, this is the state of our city. The walls are broken down. The people cannot live with peace. And they are overwhelmed with shame. And the text says that Nehemiah is so heartbroken that he literally has to sit down. Have you ever gotten news so bad that you literally grabbed for the wall and you had to sit down? That's where Nehemiah was. And that's where his journey to his calling began. And so today, what I want to do is I want to share with you four parts of Nehemiah's discovery process for his purpose, for his calling, for meaning in this season of his life, because I believe it may be a process that you and I go through too. The first part of his process was he had a problem that broke his heart. His discovery process began with a problem that broke his heart. He says that when he got this news, he sat down and he wept and he mourned for days. Maybe you've been there where you've gotten news so bad that you literally cried till you had no more tears. Where you woke up in pain and you went to bed in pain. That's where Nehemiah's journey to finding his purpose began with a problem that broke his heart. Being overwhelmed at what was happening to his people. And it says this went on for days. This wasn't a bad morning, this wasn't a late night. This was day after day after day of living in the reality of the news he received. That's where his discovery process began. It continued with a solution that was bigger than him. Because he recognized that no matter how resourceful he was, he could not rebuild this wall on his own. No matter what a good carpenter Nehemiah was, he couldn't rebuild a wall by himself. He was going to need help. And this is where I would say to you that sometimes what you may find when you encounter a problem that's that big is that you can't do it on your own. The purpose for which God created you is going to take more than you. God's calling on your life, if it's actually worthy of your life, is going to involve other people and the solution was bigger, for, bigger than him. And I would say to you, the solution for the problems you're going to solve in life are bigger than you. 
Number three, the cause would require great sacrifice. In a few minutes, we're going to learn what Nehemiah did and his cause, his purpose would demand great sacrifice for him. One of the reasons why I think some of us hesitate when embracing calling and purpose in our life is we know that might cost us something. And we go, I'm not sure I'm ready to give that. Well, when you find something that's worthy of giving your life to, it's also worthy of great sacrifice. I'm not sure who first said it, but I've always been struck by these words, that until you find the cause for which you are willing to die, you never truly live. I don't know who said this first, but I know Dr. King said these words. And then he experienced them because he found a cause for which he was willing to die. And then he did. When you start moving towards your purpose, it may cost you something. And that's okay. And number four, the outcome wasn't guaranteed. For Nehemiah, the outcome of what God was going to lead him to do next wasn't guaranteed. Now, it was guaranteed that God was going to deliver his people out of captivity and back to their homeland. He promised that. But whether he would use Nehemiah and whether this was the moment was not guaranteed. And as you follow God and step into the purposes and calling he has for you, one thing you may discover is that God may call you into a moment and not tell you how it's going to work out. I hate that. I wish he would give me the plan all rolled out. Sometimes I, I binge watch TV shows on Netflix, and sometimes if I don't feel like finishing the show, I'll just open up Wikipedia and read about how the episode ends. It saves me time, you know? If, or if the movie isn't very good, I just kind of see how it ends. We can't do that in life, though. We can only take the step that is right in front of us. And the outcome isn't always guaranteed, but we still have a step to take. And many of us, because we don't want to risk that much, we just step back. We never really give of ourselves to anything. But here's what Nehemiah is about to discover. Nehemiah is about to discover what it means to be truly alive. An American poet once said, all men die, but not all men truly live. And you and I both know people that died years before they died. That's the greatest tragedy, isn't it? People who are walking zombies. They're not zombies in the walking dead sense. They're, they're zombies in the sense that they're going through life and yet inside they're dead. And they stopped living long before their heart stopped beating. It's the great tragedy of, of American life today that so many of us are literally bored to death. We entertain ourselves to death. And we do it to mask the significant emptiness we feel because we recognize that there is no clear and discernible or identifiable meaning and purpose to our days. Maybe it isn't just you know somebody who I've been describing. Maybe I've been describing you. And the great tragedy would be if you go through your life and fill your days 
with nothing that truly matters. Nothing that will outlast you. Nothing that is bigger than you. And nothing that is connected to eternal purpose. So what meaning is driving your life right now? Be honest with yourself. Nobody's going to see this. Nobody's going to read this. You don't have to write it down. You can just think about it in your head. What meaning is driving your life right now? When you got up today, what meaning was driving the moves you took? This last year, we're already over 100 days into 2018. What meaning is driving your days? You see, I said earlier that, that we were created on purpose for a purpose. And life only makes sense when we connect with our creator who knows this purpose. And when you discover that, you can stop covering over the emptiness you feel inside with pleasure. You can stop covering over the emptiness you feel inside with power and money and wine and Amazon Prime and two more things off your bucket list this year, you can stop numbing yourself with that because you don't need to numb anymore. You are truly alive. And that does something for you on a level that another trip and another bonus and another performance review or another hit will never touch. For me, as I've tried to think about this week, about how I would articulate where I find meaning and what my cause is, I thought back to Easter Sunday where I did that, that fog illustration and talked about how I am a recovering cynic. My cause used to be to poke holes in everybody else's ideas, to point out where everybody else got it wrong. And at a certain point, no matter how much sick joy you get from that, that comes up empty. Because there's not meaning in being the one who points out where everybody else who's trying is doing it wrong. Life is pretty boring in the cheap seats. The life, the meaning, is being in the arena and living. And so I found my purpose in laying behind and laying down my cynicism and becoming a voice of hope. Because we live in a world where fear sells so well. Fear sells well on your phone. Fear sells well on your TV. Fear sells well in your computer. And fear sells well with your friends. And fear is selling at a higher price than it has ever sold before. We don't live in a world that has a deficit of fear. We live in a world that has a deficit of hope. And I discovered that my purpose is to be a voice of hope. I don't know why you came today, but I, I'm guessing that a part of it involves hope. A part of your need today involves hope. And a part of why God created me on purpose for a purpose was to be a voice of hope in your life for this moment today. And part of it is scary and part of it is difficult and there's been suffering and sacrificing across the way, but it is worth it. And right now, I feel alive. Not perfect, but alive. 
In the time that I have left, I want to show you how Nehemiah began to move towards his purpose and experienced it so that you can too. And this is in the back of your handout. The first part involves prayer and fasting. Nehemiah began with prayer and fasting. We'll pick up where we left off earlier in verse 4. It says, As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and I wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. We'll come back to that. This is Nehemiah's prayer. O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes be open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which, have, which we have sinned against you, even I and my father's house, we have sinned. So Nehemiah is not denying the reason why they ended up in exile. He's embracing it. He's repenting of it. And he goes on to say in verse 7, that we've acted very corruptly against you, God. We've not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant, Moses. Nehemiah begins to pour his heart out in prayer before God, and he begins fasting. He begins abstaining from food so that he would be even more dependent and desperate for God. And the reason why he does this is not because he's super spiritual. It's not because there are verses in the Bible that talk about prayer and fasting. It's because he knew that if this problem was going to be remedied, it would not come through him. It would come through an act of God. And he connected to a spiritual power source through prayer and fasting. Because he knew that if this was the work that God intended for him to do, he would need the power of God to do it. One of the great tragedies in America today is that there are many people who profess with their mouth that they are believers in God, but functionally, if you watch their lives, they live as atheists. Craig Rochelle describes this as Christian atheists in his book by that name. People who on Sundays are here singing songs, and then during the week they live as if they weren't here. They profess faith, but they function as if God is not real. He is not involved in their life, and they're not trusting in him. And yet we began this morning with the words of Ephesians chapter 2, which said that we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So if we're going to live out our purpose, we're going to have to be connected to the one who gave us that purpose. And so prayer and fasting makes sense that before we go to solve the problem that we're overwhelmed with, to live out the purpose God has for us, we would connect with God. I've always been struck by the words of Leo Tolstoy, the Russian writer, who said, everybody wants to change the world, but nobody wants to change himself. We live in a world where it's so popular to talk about or show how you're changing the world, but change begins in here before it happens out there. Because in most places, if God has called us to be part of the solution, guess what? We have to own that we're also part of the problem. And so change doesn't begin out there. Change begins in here. Everybody wants to change the world, but nobody wants to change himself. 
That's why Nehemiah's process is so practical for us because it begins with us. So he begins with prayer and fasting. He continues by taking risks. Taking risks. If you're going to follow God into your calling, you're going to have to face your fears. And Nehemiah does in Nehemiah chapter 2. It says, in the month of Nisan, I pronounced it Nisan for service. It's not the car company. It's the month of Nisan. In the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and I gave it to the king. Remember, he's the cupbearer. This is his job. Now, I had not been sad in the king's presence before. Important side note. And the king said to me, why is your face sad? Why is your face sad seeing that you are not sick? There is nothing here but sadness of heart. And I was very much afraid because the king has asked him to share transparently what's, what's going on inside of him. And he's afraid. And you need to know that if you're going to follow God into your purpose, there are going to be moments where you are going to be very much afraid. And God is going to call you to step forward anyway. In verse 3 it says, I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why shouldn't my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? That's why I'm sad, king. And the king said to me, what are you requesting of me? So I prayed to the God of heaven. And before we go on, I want to tell you what I imagine this moment being like. It's like a moment that many of us have had where an opportunity opens that you didn't plan for or expect and you say the silent prayer to God, God help me, here goes, and you just go for it. That's what Nehemiah does. He just shoots a prayer to heaven. Not a long prayer, four or five paragraphs, but like a text message prayer. Like the original tweet prayer, 140 characters. You just shoot it up and move on. And that's what Nehemiah does. He prays to the God of heaven in verse 4. And then in verse 5 he says, I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you would send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, with the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone and when will you return? And so it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. This is amazing. Because the reason that the walls of Jerusalem have crumbled is because the Babylonians, who Artaxerxes conquered, broke down those walls. And in the ancient day, if you rebuilt the walls of your city, you could rebel against the people who were enslaving you because you had safety and security. And so what Nehemiah is doing is he's saying, hey, I, I know the reason that we're in exile is because the people you conquered put us here and we're now serving you, but I'd really love to go back and rebuild those walls, which, you know, could lead to, you know, a rebellion, but I want to do that. And the king goes, awesome. I'll give you the time off. Just tell me when you're going to be back. Later on, chapter, chapter 2, he says, I'll send you armed guards to protect you. And by the way, here's a blank check to pay for it. That's staggering. What happens because Nehemiah prayed and fasted and then took a risk and stepped out and trusted even when he didn't know the outcome? And so my question for you is, what's the last step you took when you didn't know the next? When's the last time you took a risk because of the opportunity God was providing for you? When's the last time you stepped out in faith, not knowing what was going to come, but believing that God was real and active and involved in your life? You know, we sing a song here at, at Cornerstone that's become very popular. It's very popular in our culture right now. And I don't really like it. 
It sounds really nice. It's a beautiful song. It's got a great melody. The keyboards on it are great. It's very kind of ethereal. But every time I sing it, it terrifies me because I actually listen to the words. The song is called Oceans, and here's how the bridge goes. Spirit, lead me where my trust is without borders. Let me walk upon the waters wherever you would call me. Take me deeper than my feet could ever wander, and my faith will be made stronger in the presence of my Savior. You see why I hate it? I mean, it's terrifying. I mean, read these words. God, take me beyond the place where I trust in you. Call me out upon the waters like Peter. Take me deeper than my feet could ever wander and my faith will be made stronger. Not because I read the Bible more, not because I prayed more, but because I risked and trust in places where I was terrified. So in five minutes when we sing this song, (laughs) if it gets really quiet in this part, everybody in here knows why. Because it's way easier to talk about taking risks. It's way easier to sing lyrics about taking risks than it is to actually take them. But you will find the faith that you want on the other side of the risk God puts in front of you. And if you want that kind of faith, it's on the other side of the risk you're unwilling to take. That's Nehemiah's story. Number three, Nehemiah's path began with praying and fasting and continued with taking risks, and then it continued into influencing others. Because what happens in Nehemiah 3 and 4 that I don't have time to read through today, what happens is that he goes back to Jerusalem, begins telling the story of what God's purpose is, what God's called into, and people begin to join him in that purpose. And every man and woman in Jerusalem got involved in this. Some would stand there with a sword on their hip, prepared to defend the city, and others would be down on the ground preparing and building the wall, but everyone had a job and everyone was involved. And the amazing thing is that in 53 days, we learn the walls were rebuilt. Some of you have had your bathroom remodeled in longer than 53 days. And yet the entire city's walls are rebuilt in that time. And it shows us that cause creates community. And many times, the relationships that we're longing for, they come through us living out and following our purpose. Because as Nehemiah followed his purpose, other people saw that. They said, I want to get involved in that. I see God working there. Nehemiah, do you need help? Absolutely. Here's what your job is. And many times what we find, even here at Cornerstone, is some of the biggest bonds that people form are in the places where they're serving alongside the people they're serving with. Many of the greatest friendships that are found in this church are from people who are serving side by side in a cause. Because cause creates community. And then number four, Nehemiah had to ignore distractions. Nehemiah had to begin ignoring distractions. Because as he followed his purpose, there were distractions that came his way. Beginning in verse one of Nehemiah six, it says, when Sanballat and Tobiah, great names, And Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies heard that I had rebuilt the wall and there was no breach left in it. All up to that time, I had not set the gates and the doors. 
Sanballat and Geshem sent to me saying, come, let us meet together in Hakafrim. That's great pronunciation right there, Scott. In the plain of Ono. But they intended to do me harm. They were trying to trick him. It was a trap. And I sent messengers to them saying, I'm doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? And they sent to me four times in this way and I answered them in the same manner. He said, I am living out my purpose, guys, and I will not be distracted by it. Distraction for us today comes in all sorts of forms. It comes in the forms of technology. For some of us, it comes in terms of the expectations of people around us, of where we should be by now, what we should be doing, how behind we are. And for some of us, it's just the overwhelming worries and concerns that fry our fragile minds every day. And for others of us, it's just the haters. These guys. <laughs> I love these guys. I grew up on the Muppets, and I love these guys. And the thing is, one of two things is true about you. Either you have these guys in your life, or you have them in your own head. And they tell you things like, why should you do that? Who are you to think that you could do that? Does God know everything that you've been on in your past? Why would he ever call you to that when you've screwed everything else up? How on earth could you think that you could have a purpose like that? Who do you think you are? And Nehemiah gives us this model that if we're going to pursue God's purposes for our life, we're going to have to ignore distractions. We're going to have to ignore distractions when they're people. We're going to have to ignore distractions when they're things. And we're going to have to ignore distractions because so many of us today are distracting ourselves to death. And the reason that we're not living our purpose out is because we're so distracted. And what I want to tell you today in closing is don't waste your life. There were people sitting in this room on April the 15th, 2017 that aren't alive today. And some of you in this room today or who were here for the first service won't be here next year. Not because you changed churches, but because your life is a vapor. Tomorrow's not guaranteed. You were created on purpose and for a purpose. The greatest tragedy would be if you wasted this gift God gave you. Don't waste your life. God, we thank you that you've given us this opportunity today, this gift. There are others who weren't given this day, so we thank you for it. And God, we thank you for the reminder we have in Nehemiah and Ephesians 2 that you've created us on purpose and for a purpose. You've saved us from something and you've saved us for something. And we pray that as we lean into you, that you would bring clarity to the meaning and purpose you have for us in this season that we would gain clarity on the calling you have on our life, God. And we confess and repent for the ways that we've distracted ourselves and we've numbed out the lack of clarity we've had in this area through pleasure and power and money and stuff and another hit and another dose. 
we come to you today with this deep longing within us that you put there and only you can fill. This sense that there's a purpose to our life and the confession that only you know that purpose. So we come to you today humbly with our hands open, asking us, asking you to give us greater clarity on what that purpose is knowing that only you gave it and so only you can clarify it. God, we want to lay our lives down. We want to mean the words that we say. And we want to be able to look back a year from now and know we didn't waste this year. We didn't waste this life. We didn't just entertain ourselves, but we did the things that you gave us to do. We pray that you'd meet us this week. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.